0: I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Let's ask God's favor upon this. Father in heaven, we thank you for the reading of your word and ask that you would bless it. We pray now for the preaching of the word. We pray that we would hear from heaven and not just from me. My words are kind of useless in that regard. We pray that you would give me a voice that would be strong enough. Give us all ears that are sharp enough to hear. That we might hear your words and might believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Ooh, sorry. So, I don't know how much you followed this. I have been following it with great interest. But it's been a really interesting week to be a Catholic. Uh, there's the three people that have been following this with me. If you've been following it, you know what happened with the Catholic Church this week was kind of groundbreaking and a bit confusing and problematic. Earlier this week, the Pope, Pope Francis, conducted an interview with a gentleman who is supposedly an atheist, supposedly did not take very excellent notes, supposedly free-handed and paraphrased what he has. And I say supposedly, and you'll see why in a moment. Because in that interview, this gentleman asked the Pope something along the lines to the effect of, well, you talk a lot about heaven, you talk a lot about the life to come, but I don't ever hear you talk about hell what do, you, what do you think about hell? And the Pope, allegedly, contrasting with more than 6,000 years of church teaching and more than 1,500 years of Roman Catholic teaching, comes out and says that he doesn't believe in hell. Whoa. <laughs> right? As a kid, you always heard the saying, like, you know, do you guys have fun? Well, is the Pope Catholic? And it was always an assumption. Well, yes, of course, the Pope is Catholic. And now we're actually having to ask that question, right? Is the Pope Catholic? I'm not sure. Even the Vatican isn't sure anymore. No, I'm not joking. I'm not joking at all. Like, he, his... Interview gets published with what he allegedly said and within hours the Vatican has a statement that's already come out saying, well, how can you believe this gentleman who interviewed him? He's not a believer, he's an atheist, he didn't take good notes and trying to undercut everything that allegedly the Pope has said. It's a fantastic week. <laughs> and the intrigue, for the Catholics, has been this. That for them, the Pope is the repository of truth. He's like a treasure chest that all truth kind of resides in. And when you place all of your hopes and dreams in that one single person, and he suddenly radically changes, you don't really know what to do anymore. You don't really know where your questions are going to be answered. You don't know how they're going to be answered. And so you get to watch this fantastic battle now between the Pope and what he allegedly said and Vatican. the Vatican where they're doing damage control across all fronts. The Pope has effectively lit the world on fire and the Vatican is attempting to put it out and it's not going well. And I say it's a bad week to be a Catholic, One, partially because I'm not a Catholic, but partially because this is the gigantic disagreement that the Protestants have had with them from the beginning. We've disagreed over one fundamental thing, and it is this. What is the nature of this book? What is the nature of this book? This is my Bible, in case you didn't figure that one out. I'm I'm a helper really (laughs) what's the nature of this book because this book according to Protestants is the word of God and it's all that we need for faith and for life and for practice and doing all of the things that we need to do it's the one thing that we need to have all of our questions answered which is pretty spectacular because I have Google on my phone and I ask it so many questions constantly to think about I live in a world in which I know where my questions are to be found. The Catholic Church right now is having to kind of reevaluate and kind of do damage control. What do we do? We've placed our hope in the Pope and now the Pope has gone rogue. <laughs> You see, actually a passage like this predicts that. A passage like this actually is not surprised by that because God had that in mind when he addressed this to the early church and then ultimately even to us. In this portion of God's Word, he deals specifically with the Scriptures but deals with them as the solution, as the remedy to all of life's problems. In fact, actually, this section here, we're going to look, there's three problems that John is specifically addressing, that the church, to give them warning that, oh yes, by the way, these are three problems, church, that you are going to have as you go about your daily life. And remembering the time in which this is written, it's written in the 90s or so, it's not a time that's easy to be a Christian. I mean, it's not like it is for us today, where if we take a strong stance for Christianity, we may lose some followers on our social media accounts. We might actually have a neighbor that yells at us and hurts our feelings. This is being written in a time in which Christianity is a life and death affair, much like it is in Africa right now, or in Southeast Asia, or in many of the former Soviet countries, or even in China. And as they're wrestling through the difficulties of what it means to be Christian, one of the questions they keep coming back to is what is a Christian, and how can we tell? I mean, we have so many people that that claim to be Christians. What does it mean to be a Christian and how can we tell? It's a similar problem to what we have in America today, but for very different reasons. For them, it was a, a serious problem because the consequences were so high of getting it wrong. When your church is meeting hidden away in people's houses because the government seeks to kill you, it's a really important thing to know who else is a Christian. You remember at this point in church history, the church membership class, three years minimum in most places. Because they had to know that you were a Christian You know, we actually here in America, we we face a a similar struggle, but for different reasons. Here it's because everybody claims to be a Christian. I mean, I, I was raised in the South. I don't know how many people I've actually met that said they were intentionally not a Christian. I remember the first time I met a person that had never been to church before. It was 10 years ago. 11 years ago now, I guess. First time I'd ever in my entire life met a person who had never been in a church before. Having been raised in the South, we, we have so many that claim to be Christians and they believe so many different things and the, the views are so divergent. How do we know? And John's been answering that. He's given them a number of kind of key principles to look at. One is look at who keeps the commandments of God. If they won't obey God's law, it's a really good indication that they don't know him. It's like the person know, the neighbor who's like, well, I'm a Christian, I love God. And you're like, buddy, I know you've had five affairs in the last three years. I really have a hard time thinking that you actually understand who God is. I really have a hard time thinking you understand you know who Jesus is. Because you don't keep his commandments. And secondly, in, in chapter 2 here, he gives another identifier, and that is those that love the body. They love the church. They love God's people. And you can look at them and you can see they have affection for one another. They have great desire for one another. One of our great comedians has kind of riffed on this idea in terms of fish. People are like, oh, I love fish. I just hate the taste of it. And you're like, I... I might suggest you don't actually like fish. I, I, love, I love the church. I just hate Christians. Or I hate the institutional church. Or I, I hate the body. Or I, I love God, but I dislike his people so very much. You know what? I actually have to question if you like him or not. Because his people, though it's hard to believe, they do look like him a lot. But here as he he kind of gathers together, he focuses in, which is hard for John because John is a little bit kind of scattered sometimes in his personality. should give uh, good comfort and consolation to those of you that get distracted easily. You're much like John. There's actually one commentator that thinks of this part of the passage. John stood up and went for a break, and when he came back, he, he actually forgot what he was writing and started something different. It's not what happened, but it's very intriguing. He changes gears a lot. He gives three warnings, and the first one here is in verses 15 through 17 as to what the problem is uh, that the church will face. (coughs) Excuse me. They're already facing it then, and we are facing it now, and it is the danger of being in love with the world. Verses 15 through 17, do not love the world or the things in the world. And that's going to be a very specific kind of definition that he's using. He is not equating the world with the universe or with creation itself. He's not equating saying, look, don't love anything that has material form. And we know that because he's just told them to love the body and to love other Christians and to love the church. And last I could tell, all of you have physical form. Last I could tell. So what is he meaning when he's saying don't love the world or the things of the world? Well, what he's addressing here is is the nature, the, the structure, the push behind what's influencing creation now. Historically, the church has seen her three great enemies as being the world, the flesh, and the devil. And what he means here is the culture that is being shaped by evil. The design of evil upon the world. Do not love it. Or do not love the things of it. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And he goes, oh no, here's the problem. Is he's drawing us a Venn diagram and the circles don't overlap. There's not this middle category for a person who kind of loves the world a little bit, but loves Jesus a little bit more. They don't meet. And so he's saying, look, be aware because there will be those that come now and then those that come in the future that when you look at their affections and you look at their desires and you look at what delights them, their delight will not be in God and in his law and in his works. Their delight will be in the evil and the culture of man the fallenness of the world around. And I would love to be able to stand up here and to say, hey, church, you know what? This is what John was saying, but we don't even have to worry about that because it's not an issue. The problem is, it's as if John were pastoring here Because you think about the Western church, the American church, those that claim to be Christian. And oh my goodness, this is a scary thought. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... The desires of the eyes, pride, and possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And now here he goes back and he kind of explains the fall where Eve is tempted. When Eve is tempted by Satan in the garden to eat the forbidden fruit, it's not an apple, it's forbidden fruit. She looks at it and she she kind of goes through a mental process. She looks at it and says, It's delightful to look at. It was a very lovely piece of fruit. It will probably taste good and benefit my body in some form or fashion, and it will make me like the Lord. It was a delight to her eyes, a delight to her body, and a delight to her pride. And the problem I struggle with, and honestly, preparing for this sermon, is in many ways those three desires and delights are a description of the United States of America, or at least the people that reside in it, self included. Is that so often, unfortunately, we are marked more by a desire of the flesh, a desire of our eyes, or a desire of pride? than we are desires from heaven. I mean, we look at our culture, we look at the world around us, and we rival Rome in our sexual perversion. We rival Rome, ancient Rome, in our delight in violence. We rival ancient Rome in our delight in things that are unrighteous. And above all, oh, above all in our culture, we are told to keep our head high, to keep our back stiff, and to take pride in the things that we do. beware the love of the world why because honestly all of these things the world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of god abides forever he he creates a contrast and to say look the the expectancy of your outcome can be shaped by the things you love If you love the Lord, the Lord is forever, and you too will be forever. But if you love the world, it passes away, and you too will pass away. And here John not speaking simply in terms of physical life and death. We all know that we will die, but instead speaking of eternity. Whether we are creatures that are designed for life eternal... Or upon death we are resurrected and raised for death eternal. That wrath that Jesus undergoes on the cross paid out forever and ever. Danger one, beware of the love of the world for it is destructive. And it takes you to hell Again, I would love to pretend like that doesn't matter, that it doesn't fit us, that it's not appropriate for us to come consider the concept of that, that I'd love to pretend like that's not an issue for us, but oh my goodness, is it not the case? How much have we fallen prey to the faulty ethics of our current age? The financial ethics sexual ethics, the ethics of pleasure, that all is to be done to benefit me, to make me feel good. At this point, John is obviously not quite the most chipper of men. It's not the happiest of tones. It's not the happiest of parts of the letter. And danger one morphs directly into an even greater danger danger to beware the false teachers coming from among you children that's his term for the church remember this is old grandpa john he's very old at this point It is the last hour, and that's uh, apostolic terminology for saying this is the era between the ascension of Christ and the second coming. These are the last days where people can make choices before they die or before King Jesus comes back. Because at that point, there's no more choices made. And as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many many antichrists have come and already I've used a word that everybody has massive emotional baggage with. Antichrist. Uh, It is the stereotype in many ways of what, uh, again, American Christianity has become. That word is used five times in the Bible. Five times. In four verses. But yet how much of American Christianity has become fixated on this? which is even more amazing because we've actually not only fixated on it but we've gotten it wrong we viewed the antichrist as a pseudo-Christ an attempt to replace the Christ in fact actually all through the reformation they thought that it was the pope himself I think they're probably wrong But instead here, John's going to let us know exactly what he means. Is He means that there is a spirit, an attitude, a persuasion, a mental focus that is pointed not in an attempt to replace Christ, but completely against him. It's not a pseudo Christ. He actually has that word in his arsenal. He chooses not to use it. He uses anti against the Lord Christ. And we know that this is the last hour, it's the last days, it's the last times. And we find out the nature of what these men are. Verse 19, they went out from us. You see, these antichrist, the spirit of the antichrist, the, the mental attitude, the framework is interesting. Where it begins, interestingly, it's always connected to the same location. It begins within the church. It's not something that begins external that is the great threat. I remember as a child, actually, growing up in Charlotte, I remember, and this is, I laughed, I laughed then, actually, I laugh now. There was a gentleman who was famous, actually, nationally for publishing that he believed Barney himself was the Antichrist, which I thought was just the most hysterical thing ever because he's a purple dinosaur. And last time I checked, they were extinct, and he's not very threatening, so I kind of got chuckles at that. <laughs> But secondly, it displays actually a lack of understanding about the scriptures. Because where does the Antichrist, that that mentality, come from? Interestingly, it comes from inside the church. And these are false teachers that are raised up from inside the church, and they go out from us, and they were not of us. They don't have the truth. Again, the Venn diagram, they started in the church, but they're not of the church. And we know that because if they'd been of us, they would have continued to us. We'd all would have been together. But instead they went out, this is verse 19, they went out so that it might become obvious, <laughs> might become plain, that they're not of us. We're, we're, we're in different camps. Here John warns them, Beware the false teachers are coming from among you. You see, in our culture, I think this is an appropriate thing to remember and to be reminded of because right now it is considered socially unacceptable and politically incorrect in the worst of fashions to say that person is wrong. For me to call out other preachers by name in the pulpit would probably give some of you the heebie-jeebies. To say Joel Osteen's wrong, and the message he's preaching leads people to hell. That is absolutely the truth. Or more Fort Mill appropriate, we talked about Thursday. Jim Baker at PTL. This church was founded by a substantial portion of people that came from that ministry. And it's interesting because if you listen to what he said, he was taking you to hell. We've lost this idea that it's okay and it's good and it's right to use our minds to evaluate who is a true teacher and who is a false teacher. Because everywhere in the scriptures, it deals with the reality of false teachers. I mean, think about it. We have the Gospels that tell the story of Jesus. We have the book of Acts, which tell of the early church. And then we have all of the letters that are written to various portions of the church. And you want to know how many of those letters deal with false teachers in some form or fashion? Anybody want to take a guess? The correct answer is all of them. In some form or fashion. Either directly or indirectly. Why? Because they understand that they come from the inside and we're such sheep in the worst of ways. We will listen to anyone and to anything. That's why a, a great moment like this week with the Pope. I love that. It's a good thing. It's great that he said it. It makes me so happy because it forces us to ask the question. Who are our teachers? Who should we be listening to? Where's that source of authority? Where should we find our answers? Where is our only hope for life and death? Not all teachers are equal. And I love the delicious irony that I am a teacher saying that. And you know what? Please don't accept my word just because I said it. Don't just say, oh, we like Michael. He's been here a long time. He uh, almost has part of a voice today. That makes it more endearing to listen to. If only he had a British accent, he'd have ten more minutes on the end of his sermon every time. We could listen just fine because actually he transitions into the third danger immediately following uh, in the passage here as he walks us through what is the problem with these antichrists what is the problem with these false teachers coming up from inside the church and we're going to skip ahead to verses 22 and 23 who is the liar who is the false teacher who is the antichrist but he who denies that jesus is the christ You see, what's the problem is that these false teachers are being raised up from in their midst. They're going out and being apart. <clears throat> but the content of what they were teaching is a denial of who Jesus is and what he has done. And I love, again, this point is so valid and so true and so applicable today. And what a perfect Easter sermon! Because if you've had your television on at all or looked at virtually any kind of more academic-oriented, news-oriented sort of magazine or media this week, there have been questions everywhere over who is Jesus. I used to, when I was in seminary, go home and cut on the History Channel and get so angry that I had to cut it back off because it just made me crazy. Because it was wrestling with the question, who is Jesus? And they got it wrong every single time. You see, these false teachers are reductionistic in that they're trying to take away something from the story of Jesus. They're trying to reduce him to be something less than what the Bible tells us he is. The Bible tells us Jesus is both God and man. 100% God and 100% man. And you know what? The math doesn't work in our finite heads. And so people have in the past said, well, it needs to fit inside my skull, so I'll change it. I'm sorry, friends. It doesn't really matter if you understand it. Does it change his nature? I don't understand particle physics. Does it change the nature of physics that I don't understand it? stays the same regardless of how much I get it or how much I don't. Likewise with Jesus. They tried to reduce him to something either less than God or something either less than man. They tried to reduce it. Now you turn on the History Channel and you get to watch over and over again at the Easter season. They tried to reduce him to something less than the miraculous God who raised himself from the dead. Because, you know, the story, honestly, it is a challenge. I mean, very often today, we, we don't tend to see people raised from the dead. I mean, I'll give you a hint. All of us will at the end. So it's just a matter of timing. We haven't seen it yet. But we tend to not see it very often today. And so we tend to... Uh, at least some do impose that upon Jesus to say there's no way the resurrection can happen there's no way easter can happen there's no way cuz my mind doesn't understand it or believe it and unfortunately that is the heart of the false teacher to proclaim my mind as greater than what god has done to proclaim me greater than what god has said about himself to proclaim me greater than God's self-revelation. It's a silly illustration, but it's, you know those people that you've met that have a name that's maybe a little bit more difficult to pronounce than some? Or maybe they pronounce it a very special or particular way. I did this last week, actually. Actually. I mispronounced a Caroline as a Carolin. Was informed in no uncertain terms. I was incorrect and I was very embarrassed because I'd been mispronouncing this lady's name for approximately 11 years. But it's spelled like the other one. But you know what? She gets to determine how her name is pronounced and not me. Because it's her name. It belongs to her. It's revealed and told by her. It's hers and not mine. Likewise, God has revealed himself. I don't get to be the one who reshapes his pronouncements about himself. He's told me his name. I don't get to change that. He's told me his nature. I don't get to change that. He's told me what he's done. I don't get to change that. I have to agree to his rules. And again, I would love to pretend like this denial of the Lord Jesus or denial of the Trinity is not something that we wrestle with in the American church today or American culture today, but that would be silly because we know it's happening. And honestly, we struggle with our Trinitarian understanding, many of us, were. struggle with who Jesus is sometimes. But honestly, the biggest thing our culture does is to simply try to marginalize him so we never have to answer the questions at all. If we ignore him, I won't have to talk about him. It's part of why I love Easter season and watching the news media and watching the television and all the different shows and to watch how they try to cope with a forced time of reckoning of answering. because you see these these three problems a, a love for the world the false teachers that rise up from within us a clever denial of the person of the Lord Jesus all of these things are realities that we have to face day to day week to week and very rapidly I'll end with this God has not left us without a solution in fact, actually, I skipped over the verses that tell it on purpose so we could kind of look at it together at the end. Verses um, uh, tw- 20 through 22, 24 through 27. Look at 20 through 22. All right, how do we deal with the false teachers? But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, uh, because you do know it, because there is no lie in the truth. We have the Holy Spirit to help us understand God's Word. You don't have to listen to the false teachers, to the false prophets. You go to the Word of God, and His Spirit will help you understand it. 24 through 27, it's the same thing. Let what you've heard from the beginning, the truth of God's work, abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. I write these things about, I'm sorry, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. They're trying to lead you away. But the anointing of the Holy Spirit that you receive from him abides in you so that have no need for anyone to teach you. Why? Because you've got the Word of God and you actually have the Spirit of God. You don't need a church to keep the barrier between you and the Scriptures. You don't need a Pope to tell you that heaven or hell is not real. God has already done so and you can read it for yourself. Again I recognize the delicious irony of a, a preacher standing up front saying look you don't need a teacher and you know what that's exactly right you call me old and if I'm wrong If I'm wrong you take me to the book and you show me I'm wrong and you know what you'll be right Cuz that's the reality of the world in which we live the church in which we live is we have God's truth in the scriptures we have his spirit that resides within us we have all the answers we need God's people will be people who love the word and thereby love him. You see, I think actually John is alluding to another problem. It's that kind of Christian who claims to be a Christian says, I, I love God, but I don't love the Bible. I'm sorry, friend, you don't love God because you cannot know him apart from the Bible. If you don't love the Bible, I worry Because the Bible is the thing that tells you from start to finish the story of who Jesus is. It tells the story of how God made men and women and how they were good at the beginning. It explains the reason for all of the beauty in the world around us. It explains why mothers love their children. It explains why cheesecake is good. It explains why all of the things in the world make sense as beauty and wonderful. And then it explains the fall of humanity. That Adam sinned against God and in his sin uh, there was corrupting death that leached into the very fabric of creation and then God cursed it even further. It tells the story of how that corruption, uh, we were not spared, but it snuck into us and infiltrated every part of our being so that we are creatures with evil wills, so that we are creatures with evil logic, so that we are creatures with evil feelings and desires, so that we are corrupted every part of us from top to tail. And it tells the story of how in light of that there is no hope for humanity. There is no good news in them because the corruption has touched us all. And then it tells the story of how God sent his son to step inside time and space as a poor Jewish carpenter to live a life that was perfect. To die a death that was undeserved. To remain under the power of the grave for a short time. And then to be raised unto life again. And if that weren't good enough, he doesn't actually stop there. (laughs) He stays for a time here talking to his people. And then that same son ascends into glory. He sends his spirit and says, oh, by the way, you have all of the victory that I have achieved in you and I give it freely. You see, that's the good news of the story is that the victory that Jesus has accomplished is for the people of God, and it's given freely. It's free. Which is why it's so important that we distinguish who has it and who doesn't. Because it comes at no cost to us. The only thing you need do is receive it by faith. May it be that we, during this Easter season, may it be that we as God's people, or at least in a part of the culture that always and constantly proclaims that, may it be that we think about that free gift and whether we have tasted in faith of God's mercy to us. May it be that we would love the Word and thereby love the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it teaches us everything we need to know about life and godliness. We thank you that it teaches us the answer to death. And we thank you that it does not need to be our own death and destruction, but that it can be Jesus. Give us understanding, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.